himself said, I spoke that way so that they could not understand, but be taken and snared. Uh, he told the disciples, as was quoted there in John, that I will one day speak plainly. But he had a purpose in saying things in such a way that people then could not understand, and Romans 11 explains that, that he is doing it so that ultimately they might be saved. In other words, if you're deceived, you have somewhat of an excuse for not doing what is right. If it is told you plainly, your excuse is removed and you are held responsible. Now, he did send his Holy Spirit to make things clear. And much, if not nearly all the Bible in that sense, is written so that the carnal, human, normal mind, the average Protestant, Catholic, Buddhist, anybody else who pick up the Bible, picks up the Bible, will not understand it. Now, they'll get certain principles out of it. They'll see somewhat of a picture but they won't understand what salvation is all about. Their minds are blinded so that they might see later. Now we should be beginning to understand clearly. Our salvation is on the line. We should be at the point, we should be able to explain parables and allegories and analogies that were meant to deceive at one point should begin to penetrate and we should begin to understand now. And that is the key to understanding, or a big key to understanding prophecy and understanding the future and understanding what is happening right now within God's church is that we begin to understand what God is talking about in terms of our lives. What is happening right now is so very, very important to the fulfillment of his plan. You and I are very important to fulfilling his plan. He called us to be a part of it. Now, many were called and few are being chosen, and I hope that we make wise use of our calling. Now, most are not, and it is going to take another teaching method for that to occur. Judd was right in saying there are many, many teaching possibilities and opportunities and ways of going about it in this book. He brought out nine. Now, Jeremiah starts out by pronouncing that the Gentile destroyer is coming, that Israel is going to be destroyed from a coalition from the north the traditional Gentile enemies, essentially, of Israel getting together and coming against Israel. But it will be coming, it was coming then, and it will be coming here in the end time. So, what is the teaching method that God is using right now? It is a very, very effective one. And it is one that we like less than all of those that Judd named. Those that he named are basically classroom friendly. They are essentially ones that teachers like to use to embellish something, to make a story more interesting, to make it penetrate and be remembered, if you will. 
Well, this one's designed to penetrate and make you remember too, but it's also designed to wake up. And that method, dare I say it, is chastening. Punishment. Punishment for our present sins, spanking so that it might get our attention. Any teacher knows that if you do not have the attention of the classroom, you're not going to get anything across. When a teacher is so blah and so dry and so has so, such difficulty getting his ideas across, it is very difficult to listen. And what happens to you when that occurs? Your mind rebels. It will shut off and not even listen. It will go somewhere else. I remember a professor I had in Ambassador College in Pasadena, of all places, who was as dry as unbuttered popcorn. Oh, The man, you know, there was an automatic switch. When his mouth opened, your eyes shut. It just, that's just the way it worked. And mine would go to diagramming X's and O's for basketball or something, designing plays for you know, the next game, whatever it might be. I can't say I learned a great deal in that class. In fact, I can't remember anything I learned there. I remember walking out of there one day and somebody told me Jack Kennedy had been shot. That's the only thing I remember from that class. Man, that's been a long time. Anyway... God has methods when he gets ready to teach something that are very memorable, that are very poignant, that are very striking. And chastening is one of his greatest tools. It includes removing of privileges. It includes removing of blessings. It includes even cursings at times. Deuteronomy, Leviticus make that very clear. And when we make a covenant with God... If we don't adhere carefully to that covenant and do everything we said we would do, that he would send cursings upon us. Now, that's not something we want, is it? I don't like to be cursed. Uh, don't want to be cursed. And yet, right now, we are part of a scattering and a cursing that is coming from God, and he can't bear to see us. Now, I hate to keep repeating that. It isn't fun. But we have got to do those things that will cause his face to turn back and shine upon us. Just as a child who is in the bad graces of a parent, and they don't like to be scolded, they don't like to be corrected, they don't like privileges taken away, they don't like spankings, they don't like discipline, and they do everything to avoid it, and when it comes, they rebel against it by pouting, by whining, by stubbornness, by all kinds of things that they have devised in their little hearts and minds to rebel against the teaching that the parents are trying to get across. And that is happening with the church today. We, we are in denial overall. We do not want to think that God's feelings and affections for us have been somewhat frustrated 
I won't say his love for us is gone. It's not. Because he is chastening in love for our salvation's sake. You do not, if you are a proper parent, punish your children or chasten them out of selfishness. I.e., shut up, you brat, you're driving me crazy. See, that is not loving chastening of the child. The reason you're doing it is because that child cannot control his emotions, his attitudes, his feelings, and his actions. So you lovingly suspend privileges, scold, spank, whatever the infraction deserves, for the sake of the child. The child does not like to hear it, and I always questioned it when my mother, dear one sitting back there, would say, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. Yeah, right. <laughs> From my perspective, I didn't believe that. Today, I understand what she meant. It's hard for a parent to chasten and to correct and actually inflict pain on that child. But if the parent understands what babies and children are all about and what children spiritually are all about, they will understand it is for the good of the child, not just to ease their frustrations, but so that the child might learn emotional, mental, and physical control. And God sees a church today which is proud, which is haughty, which does not want to listen, which wants to hear smooth and easy things, and it is a basically worldwide attitude held by the church. He is bound and determined to change it. The longer we resist it, the harder it will get. The quicker we respond and turn to him with our whole heart and our tears turn to tears of repentance and remorse and I'm sorry, Father, and I love you and I want you to hug me and I want to hug you instead of getting these poundings continuing. He is looking for a change in heart and attitude. He's looking for compliance, for meekness. He's looking for us to respond in love to him. Now, to a lot of people in the world today, that doesn't, it isn't logical, it doesn't make sense. I should just love them all the time and then they'll love me. No, if you try to be their friend all the time and you try to just show affection all the time, they will come to despise and disrespect you. God is not being just our friend. God is being a parent right now. Now, he wants us to be his friends. He wants to be able to sit down, as Christ said, the disciples, and all be friends together. He said, I'm not calling you servants anymore. I've elevated you to the level of friends. And yet, right now, he is chastening us. And that's what Jeremiah is getting to. He starts in telling what the problems are. And then he will get to what God is going to do about it. He already has a little bit here. Now, last time I spoke, we got down to chapter 3 and down to verse 6. 
Uh, and he's been asking some questions. How did you turn into a degenerate vine when I gave you what you needed? You know, we had essentially what we needed in Worldwide if we had been hot rather than lukewarm about it. We weren't really cold, or perhaps we wouldn't have even stayed there, but we had lapsed into lukewarmness, and our heart wasn't really in it the way God intended it to be. So he says, how did this happen? He says, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? How did this come to be? And where you say, I have not sinned, into verse 35, chapter 2. How did we come to say, I'm okay, we're okay, what's wrong? It must be you guys. How did we get to this attitude? And he said, beginning of chapter 3, you played the harlot with many lovers, and this is unforgivable, but I forgive you anyway, come back to me. And there we begin to realize that since this is an end-time prophecy, he's, re he's referring to us, not ancient Israel. He divorced them. But the, the last application is to you and me, where we have gone after the things of this world rather than having our hearts set on God. Paul talks a lot about being carnal and worldly, fleshly. Uh, and that was a problem, obviously, in the early New Testament church. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about here, being carnal-minded. Flesh-minded, that's what carnal means, fleshly, of meat, of the things of this world. And he says in verse 3, Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. In other words, I have removed blessing and privilege from you. Isn't that what a parent does? child says, well, I'm not going to do that, or by his action shows his unwillingness, you remove privileges. Okay, be in that attitude. But you don't get to do this, this, and this. Oh, you wanted to do that? Well, I'm sorry, you know, but I don't see any smiles here. I see pouting. I see whining. I hear noises that I don't want to hear from you. Change your attitude. Change your actions. Then we'll talk about the beach, you know, or whatever it is they want. God says, I mean, right now, what do we want? We want blessings from God. We want showers of blessings, as Isaiah puts it. We want healings. We want physical blessings of all kinds. We're not getting much of that. God has removed the latter rain. Therefore, we need to consider our attitudes. Are we whining? Are we pouting? No, I... Let me use a little personal example here. Maybe I shouldn't, but I will. In the last two or three weeks, for some reason, I've just, I felt overwhelmed. Just plain tired. Uh, emotionally, mentally, not so much physically, but your emotional and mental attitude affects your body. And I don't know why, I just, I just felt like everything is just too much. So I complained to God about it. God, can you, can you get this over or something? I'm tired of preaching. I'm tired of doing. I'm tired of thinking. I'm just plain tired. 
Maybe that's why it kicked me in bed for three days. Well, all right, then don't preach. Go lay down. Fall in love with your bathroom. I challenged us at the beginning to get as close to God as we could, and I was as close to the porcelain as I could get. Uh, maybe he was showing me something, you know. But after three days of rest, thank you, I'm happy to be back preaching instead of what I was doing. Maybe, maybe he heard my complaint. <laughs> I said, all right, <laughs> I want to gripe. I'll give you something to gripe about. You know, that's the way a parent does. So I've removed the latter rain. He's removing privileges. And you had a whore's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. In other words, uh, there's another scripture that says the, the, the whore just wiped her face or brow and said, I've not sinned. And we can be seeking things other than God and not have any shame about it, no remorse about it. We can convince ourselves that we're not doing wrong, that there's nothing wrong with this, there's nothing wrong with this, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, taken of itself, in some cases, maybe not. But if it's taking our time and our energy and our feelings and our emotions from God and putting it somewhere else, then it becomes an idol, even though the specific thing itself might not be absolutely condemned here. The attitude that goes with it and the lack of concentration and devotion to God breaks the first commandment. And that makes him jealous probably more than anything else. All right, let's go on and pick it up in verse 6 where we... Well, I'll review verse 5. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? And maybe we're beginning to feel that. You know, the church has been under siege now for about 20 years. Well, it didn't really start flying apart until 92, 93, but um, the roots and everything went all the way back and the frustrations. I remember being frustrated to some degree, even in the last years of Mr. Armstrong's life, that there was no movement forward and so on. We'd stagnated and we were off the track and it was becoming very obvious. And it was obvious to him, but he couldn't do anything about it. And then from the very beginning of the Koch regime, uh, the comrades, there's something wrong. The Russian was not leading us in the right direction. I mean, he changed makeup immediately. He changed healing, I think, even before that. Things that Mr. Armstrong had been adamant about. And from there, it just went downhill very rapidly. And that bothered me from the very beginning. So the frustrations go back a long way. And the thing didn't start really flying apart until the early 90s. But we're beginning to think, man, how long will this go on? And that's part of my weariness, I think. Sometimes it just gets to you. Uh, we watch world events. We watch the leaves coming on the trees, and they're coming. And, you know, it's obvious, not only to us, it's obvious to the world now that there is a new world order coming. 
it is obvious to a lot of people that you talk to if, when you get a chance on an airplane or wherever that there's something amiss. There's something wrong. The uh, approval of our government is slipping way down. Bush, Bush approval is in the 30s now, percentage-wise. 37, 38, 39. That's really low. They realize our government is doing a lot wrong. And a lot of people high in the government now are under question and being indicted and all kinds of things are going haywire. People are beginning to see through a lot that is happening. And we feel it at the gas pump and, and then we'll feel it everywhere else too because costs of everything will go up when the price of freight goes up. So it's no mystery now that there are things wrong. It's no mystery that almost the whole world hates us, that we're not liked, and that the Islamic world would love to kill every one of us if they had a chance. So this isn't something that's being done in a corner anymore. It's not something somebody's preaching in 1952 from XELO or XEG in Mexico that we're going to have trouble in this country, and everybody says, oh yeah, sure, right. No, it's here now. The problem you and I have is that we know it's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years, maybe sooner, we keep hoping. So we know it's going to come within a lot of our lifetimes, if not all of them for that matter. We know it's almost here. It's just that having to wait that last year or two or three or five gets difficult, gets hard. You're anticipating something you know is coming, and it's hard to wait. To me, it's almost like graduating from high school or college. You can enjoy your freshman, sophomore, junior year in either case. But your senior year, there's only one thing on your mind. Get me out of here. You don't learn much your senior year because there's only one thought going through your mind. Get me out of here. Now, maybe you didn't have that experience, but I did. Especially in college. By then, I was tired of school. By then, I wanted to go out and do something else for a while. So my senior year was, let's, let's get through this. Let's get through it as quickly as you can. Let's play basketball and, and do this and that, and let's suffer through class. Uh, maybe I learned a little patience. Don't think I learned much there, because I was impatient all year. If you're learning patience, that means you have a patient attitude. If you haven't learned it, you're still impatient and frustrated. And I think that that's part of our problem now, is we are impatient and frustrated. But what we have to do, brethren, is we have to back off a little bit and look at the whole thing and say, it is going to happen, I can be part of it, but this is all in God's timing, all in his plan, all in his purpose, and he will do what is best, when it is best, for every one of us. Remember Habakkuk and the attitude he came to have at one point? He began to question, well, why this, why that, and why are you going to do this? And he was getting frustrated that it wasn't all happening. So he finally says, all right, okay, I'll sit back on my watchtower, and I'll wait and let you work it out. 
So he decided instead of being exasperated, he would back off and be patient and let God work it out. And Haggai, I mean not Haggai, but Habakkuk is just before Zephaniah, which then talks about the financial crash of the economies of Israel and what he tells us to do before that happens. So I think we are in the right mode. I think we're headed the right direction, but we need to have patience and trust and wait for God because he knows when this will best happen for the sake of everyone involved, including the world and especially his people. And he knows what he has to do. He has to get a faithful remnant ready in this initial punishing of what is happening as a teaching tool. And then he is going to take those who might be accounted worthy out because they have grown and changed and overcome. They're not perfect. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, pray that you be accounted worthy. It isn't automatic. We are not going to be saved out of it automatically. And nor will we have fully qualified. I don't think any of us will have reached that point where we are fully qualified, where God says, oh, how could I deny you? Come on. I think I will be praying up to the last minute, please account me faithful. And when I see those armies coming over the hill, I'm going to say, please count me worthy. Don't let me break my leg crossing the fence here, jumping the fence, however I go. No, we'll not be perfect. We will not be totally what God wants. We'll come somewhere short of it, and we'll be praying for mercy and help and accounting as worthy. But then the 90% who are not accounted worthy, who are not given the knowledge, who deny or reject the knowledge and the leadership that God is sending, that 90%, 91%, you know, small remnant, not full 10%, small remnant, some hair taken out and thrown into the fire, Ezekiel 5, are going to go into the tribulation. And there, Zechariah says, 30-some percent of them will repent. But man, you think it's tough on us being chastened now, on the whole church, and us as part of it. We are partly responsible as individuals. You think it's tough now, wait till that tribulation starts. And they're chasing you down, trying to kill you physically in any form or fashion they can. And there's not food. The nation's going into captivity, dying of famine and pestilence, bird flu or whatever the famine and pestilence comes as a result of. I don't know that God necessarily has to himself cause famine. We'll bring that on ourselves by the greed of oil companies and government officials who want to raise the price of oil and raise the price of producing crops and all the things that they do that are going to mean that Walmart goes empty. And for some reason they can't get it here from China. But the Chinese don't grow enough food to feed us anyway. They bring us goo but they don't bring us food. 
That's produced here, for the most part, for our people. And we may contrive ourselves to make that famine. We're already doing it by forcing the soil with chemicals and things that should not be used in it. We're never intended to be used there. They kill the micro microbes that God put there. We're feeding chemicals and artificial hormones and all kinds of things to the animals we eat. They're getting, overall, as time goes by, less healthy. The soil is becoming hard and rigid in a lot of places because it's had too many phosphates and wrong things put to it and it will become less uh, productive. In fact, if you quit using those artificial fertilizers now, it will become less productive immediately. What if those petroleum-based things, many of them are not anymore available? to put on the soil, and the soil has already been ruined. Well, maybe we're talking 10, 15, 20 years off when it becomes that bad. But then again, maybe not. You've been forcing the soil, and it no longer has what it needs, and for some reason the oil production and the various means of getting artificial fertilizers to the soil is cut off. That could be a man-caused famine. And with famine then always comes disease and pestilence because we become less healthy. And we're bringing the pestilence on ourselves by eating all these chemicals that we're eating. I get people that resist me once in a while about giving up the garbage that they're putting in their systems. But in an overall sense, isn't it obvious? Even some of these people out in the world are beginning to realize we've got to get the candy and the Cokes and the junk out of the schools. And they have a big movement going. They're smart too. Maybe they're smarter than us. We recognize it because God told us in various ways in Scripture. They're beginning to recognize it because they see the sickness and the obesity and the poor health in our nation's youth they're beginning to see the effects. So they themselves are beginning to say, we need to change this. Shouldn't we, as God's people, see it sooner than them? Shouldn't we do more about it than them? We're bringing a lot of it on ourselves because we will not, as a nation, as a people, and ultimately, as a church, do things as best we possibly can under the circumstances in which we live. We still go with the flow of Babylon an awful lot. Will God stay angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? No, he says he won't. And we'll read that a little more later. Let's go on. In the verse 5, let's pick that up too. Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you could. There are a lot of things we just do simply because we can. There's no one standing there saying, don't you do that, so we just do it because we can. And that's the way a lot of people live. Now, you can do a lot of things. God has given you many opportunities, and Satan has given you many opportunities 
And you can do as your human nature desires, you can do as your five senses desire, or you can control yourself and do as God says. That does not come easy. The man are the rewards ever great. There is a small 10% remnant that God is going to bless even in this age for an example to the rest of the world. And there is the blessing of no more weeping, no more tears, no more crying, eternal life and no death, no frustration, no fears that is to come for those who will pay the price now when things are tough. You know, part of it, I think, is that, that led to the little tempest in a teapot in my head that was going on is, man, if the world tomorrow is going to be like this, I don't even want to be there. If I had to live forever like this, why would you ever want to be there? And it's hard for us. I mean, you know, maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, 100 years, if you push it, uh, is acceptable, and, and we'd like to live that long. But can you imagine living 900 to 1,000 years like they did before the flood? That, that blows my mind because we are told that we need to live according to God's way of life. And it's hard to convince our flesh that God's way is the best way to live. We have our way of thinking, our way of acting, our way of doing, and the five senses that we want to keep pleased so we can feel warm and comfy and do exactly what we want to do just because we can. And resisting that is bad enough for 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years, but resisting it for 1,000 years is more than I think I could take. And if I were to live into God's kingdom and be given eternal life, and I were to be there as I am, I wouldn't want that. Because my human nature resists God. And it's hard to walk by the Spirit. And it's hard for us to grasp what it would mean to actually be spirit and not have any pulls in any wrong direction. That is beyond our capacity to fully grasp because we have had to resist all our lives. I mean, even when we were this long, our parents began to teach us to resist bawling and crying and whining and griping and pouting and and rebellion, and trying to get us to be sweet and pleasant and loving and smiling when we didn't want to be that way. So all our lives, from the beginning of our memory, someone was telling us to do something we didn't want to do. Maybe that's why we hate preaching so bad. It's a continuation of telling us things we need to do that we don't want to do by our very nature. And we, we by nature, are stiff-necked and rebellious. God called Israel that. You're stiff-necked and rebellious. You're like a backsliding heifer, all four feet planted, and you will choke yourself to unconsciousness before you'll say, 
Okay, I'll go along. Have you ever tried to pull a horse or a cow or a goat or a sheep or a dog that didn't want to be pulled along, didn't want to go where you wanted it to go? They'll plant all four. Got to drag them. And that's what Jesus Christ is faced with. He's faced with a people who want what he has offered, but they're not willing to do what he says to do to get there. We are in a society that does not want to pay the price. Human nature, human beings have never wanted to pay the price. We've always wanted a free ride. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll even invent whole religions that encompass hundreds of millions of people who will write their whole religion using the Bible as a leather cover, rejecting what it says inside, but coming under the cover, they will build a religion that says all you've got to do is get water sprinkled on your head, accept the Lord, and you're saved. You'll get all these things the Bible promises if you'll just do that. Now, how easy can religion get? If you'll just show up at Christmas and Easter, then that atones for everything else. And that's basically all religion amounts to in most Protestant religions today. Why did Christ say it is a hard, rugged, rutty, straight road? If anybody tells you religion is easy, that's time to shut them off right now. Jesus Christ himself said in so many words it's going to be tough and hard and difficult. And through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. And many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's just the way it is. Religion is intended to be difficult. You have heard many people in this world tell you anything that is worth having is worth working for. Teachers, leaders, anyone. If you have a physical goal on this earth, nothing comes easy. We talk about those people who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They're few and far between. And we find that even they have extreme difficulty in life because not everything goes their way either, even though they may have money. Their love life, their emotional life, whatever their goals are, if they're beyond just having a Rolls Royce, sometimes come difficult in a difficult way. If they have a goal and a purpose in life, they have to work at it. And so does the working class. Nothing comes easy except sin and pain. That comes real easy. We do these things simply because we can. And God said, yes, you can do that. But believe me when I say, I am a jealous God and you won't get away with it just that simple. He will not allow us to get away with it. He isn't anymore. 
He has put his foot down. He said, this is the way it's going to be. You either get in line or you're going into the tribulation. And that basically is Jeremiah's message. Verse 6, chapter 3, Jeremiah. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? Jeremiah, look around. Can you see the problems with this country, with this nation? Can you see the problems with the church? Let's apply this to spiritual as well as physical Israel. Someone says, well, Zion is in heaven there in Hebrews 12. Yes, it is. Zion is also in the old city of Jerusalem. Zion is also the church, and we're meeting in a place called Zion. The Bible is full of allegories. It's full of analogies. It has skins like an onion. But he talks in here, and we'll see it a lot in Jeremiah, about the daughters of Zion. Yes, our headquarters is in heaven. Yes, that is ultimately Zion, and we are Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem is in heaven. Our headquarters is there, and it will come down, and we're called the holy city in Isaiah 60 and in Isaiah 62. These things all have many different meanings. Meanings. But when he talks about the daughter of Zion, it's clear to me he's talking about the church. When he talks about the daughters of Zion, it's clear to me he's talking about the various daughters that have been scattered now. Because women are represented as churches in prophecy. So when he's talking about Israel here and Judah, he's talking about spiritual Israel and spiritual Judah first. And that's what is Romans 11 is all about. That he's concluded physical Israel in blindness. Those teaching tools have been denied them. The understanding has been denied physical Israel because God would have to destroy them eternally if they understood what you and I understand and still didn't follow it. So in mercy, he has blinded their eyes to what the real truth is so that he can save them in the long run. Now, he has opened our eyes, opened our minds so that we can see because you know, he could have concluded us all in unbelief, and then he could have resurrected us all and said, all right, now, first grade, here's what we're going to do. But he wants help, and he wants companionship in building a family relationship in the millennium, and he wants those children to have not a one-parent household, but a two-parent household. He doesn't want them to be children of divorce. He wants them to be children of a husband and wife who are together in goal and purpose, mind and attitude. And in destroying most of the population of the earth and getting everyone's attention, because they're not going to learn anything until he has their attention. So the Great Tribulation is an attention-getter. The seven last plagues are attention-getters. Now, once he has their attention, be ready to listen. Whether they live through the tribulation and last plagues and into the millennium, their eyes are going to be open wide, their hair standing on end, and they're going to wonder, how in the world did I get through that? Is that the end of it? Show me a better way. 
They'll be all eager to learn. The spanking that God is doing here at the end will be such a spanking that he will finally get everyone's attention. Now we are in jeopardy because he wants us to be part of the teaching process. He wants us to be the mother. And if you don't get mama's attention, then how are you going to get the kids' attention? We're mama. Our schedule to become mama. And it says that Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all in Galatians. And he's talking there in context of the Galatian and the New Testament church, which we are a part of. Not the Galatian, but of the New Testament church. He wants us to be there, to be mama to all these children whose attention he is grabbing. Now, mama can't feel still, still be fighting dad. Mama can't, or the wife can't be fighting the husband. You know, we have marriages like that all over this country and all around the world right now where the husband and wife are fighting. And the children see the fighting. And the children see the divorces. And the children see the upset. And it upsets them. And it's hard for them to be what they ought to be, hard enough to be a kid as it is, without dad and mom going at it all the time. So what he wants is a humble, meek, teachable people today. And for the most part, the church is not there. Paul was dealing with a problem in 1 Corinthians 14, where it says everyone has a prophecy, everyone has a teaching, everyone has an idea, everyone has something to say. I get my mail from Corinth, and it is such a miserable mess of different ideas, that something's got to be done about it. And he wants us to be without any division, any schism. Scripture says in so many words, we are all to speak the same thing. Somehow, some way, we have got to come to that point where we all speak the same. Can you imagine a universe, a millennium, a thousand years of peace and safety on earth when you have the bride arguing with the groom and you have different pieces and parts of the bride still arguing among themselves? Isn't it obvious we all have to come to be on the same page? Now, if we're not... That means some attitudes, some teachings, some beliefs have to be modified. Now the problem is, in the church, there is very, very little meekness and humility. There is an awful lot of pride and vanity in my view. There's an awful lot of that. And until that goes away, it will be impossible for us to all be on the same page. It simply cannot happen. Now, I'm trying to give a bigger picture, an overview of where, of how our little squabbles have an impact on what God is doing and what he will do with you or me. 
as individuals. Will we be a part of it? Will we learn or will we not? Now, I have never claimed that I have the correct knowledge on everything. No one here has ever heard me say that because I've never said it. And I don't believe it. And if you show me in a way that I cannot doubt in the Scripture that I am wrong, I will change it. Sometimes we are not willing to bring it because we're afraid we will be proved wrong and we'll use the excuse, well, he wouldn't believe it anyway. I've changed on some pretty major things, haven't I? So don't let anybody throw that one down your throat. But you too. You want me to be teachable. You want me to change and go according to your views. Are you willing to change and go along with some of mine? In other words, are we willing to let the Bible interpret itself? And are we so intellectually vain and proud that we cannot admit that we could be wrong about something? Now, the preacher could be wrong, but I couldn't. Is that correct? And it's just as bad for the preacher to say, they could be wrong, but I couldn't. We all have to work together to come to a point that we're all on the same page with no division, no schism, all speaking the same thing. We're to be the bride of Christ. We've got to achieve that. What's it going to take? What will it take from you and what will it take from me? It may take the tribulation. I hope not. I hope we can get past those things. But the whole church has a problem with that today. Just as it was in Corinth. All you've got to do is pick up the journal and it becomes obvious in a real big hurry that everybody has his own idea and he's pushing his own idea. And no one is ready to listen. We are not teachable overall as a church. And God is going to keep the pressure on brethren. He will keep it on until we are teachable. That we are not proud, but we are humble and meek. And we are not full of pride and intellectual or spiritual vanity. It's just going to happen. Now if, see, knowledge on every little teaching or doctrine in the Bible is not nearly so important as is love. It is the greatest thing. Now, if we fight and squabble among ourselves and show a lack of love, we have a much bigger problem than disagreeing on two or three or five verses or five passages or a book of the Bible or a doctrine, whatever it is that we disagree on. If we don't have enough love to work at it together until we find the correct answer, then we don't have the love of God abiding in us, at least not enough of the love of God to overcome the difficulties. And we have a far greater problem because we are missing the biggest, most important thing. But it shows that the love of many is waxing cold in that in the church today, 
wherever you might be, whatever organization you go to, you find people who disagree, and they leave, and they go somewhere else, and then they go somewhere else, and then they finally wind up on their, on their couch because they're the only righteous one there is. There's no one else I can go to. I'm it. That's where you'll wind up if you lack enough of the love of God. The love of God is not just an emotion. We can have human feelings for people. We can have a lot of emotion. And love includes emotion. But that isn't all love is. The world understands emotion as love. You know, two people meet in a bar and they fall in love instantaneously. Yeah, they do, sure. No, they fall in the lust or the emotion of lust is what they fall into. It has nothing to do with love. It has lots of gooey feelings, but it's not love. And we can have lots of gooey feelings, too, and we're looking for some other goo somewhere that we can attach to. You know, goo sticks together, I guess. But as soon as we disagree, the goo goes away and we spring apart. Now, is that the love of God? No, it's not. The love of God has to do with his word. And he says, this is the love of God that you keep all his commandments. All his words. That's what defines love. And when you have that kind of love, the emotion will naturally and correctly come with it. But if you just have the emotion, but it's not based on caring enough about people to work together to come up with the right answer instead of saying, well, if you don't believe me, I'm gone. What can you do with that? What can you do with that? But that's the way, overall, the whole church is. And if the ministry disagrees with people, then automatically we're all like flurry. Not true. Maybe I shouldn't pick on him. There are plenty of others that are that way. But if you disagree with him, you're gone overnight. I'll tell you what, part of my getting tired and weary is that I'm trying to be patient with a lot of people because we all have a long way to go. And we have a lot of growing to do. And it would be an awful lot easier to do like Flurry does. Disagree with me? Bye. Go. That's, it's a lot easier for him, isn't it? Disagree on anything, you're out the door right now. Even ask a question and you can be out the door, gone. Now, shouldn't we rather be patient and gently try to guide, help, Scold when necessary. Paul told Timothy to do that. And see that people have a chance to grow, to overcome, to learn humility and meekness. You don't, you don't get the boot around here very quickly. And maybe almost, brethren, at times to a fault. You know, if you wait too long to give the boot, sometimes people begin to think, ah, don't worry about it. No big deal, no big problem. Just like a parent who doesn't stop the child. Eventually the child says, 
Eh, I can wait till the tenth warning, no big deal. Well, God gave us lots of warnings. And now he's done warning, and he's chastening, he's punishing. And he's not going to quit until he hears a different sound from our voices. He's not going to quit. He's not going to let up until there's repentance. And if there's not repentance, there's not meekness, there's not humility, and all the scriptures where he says, you might be saved, you could be hid, he always talks about humility, meekness, righteousness, and obedience, and having our heart turned to him. Always. Throughout all the prophecies, and all through the New Testament. That's what he does. So either we will have come to that point by the time the tribulation starts that day when the flight occurs and will be counted worthy because of attitude and response and humility before him, or we're going to go into the tribulation and we're going to suffer such horrible conditions, such a tough spanking, that we'll either repent then or go into the lake of fire. That's what it's going to come down to. So God says to Jeremiah, have you seen what is going on? Backsliding Israel is done. She's gone upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. She's done all the things contrary to the covenant she made. That's what playing the harlot means spiritually from God. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn you to me. That's what God is telling us right now. Turn to me. Other places he says, turn with your whole heart. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. He said, I can't take it anymore. I'm putting you away. You're out of here. God comes to the point where his patience is gone. And he says, you've broken the covenant repeatedly. The covenant is over. Now, if we do that with the new covenant... He's going to tell us the covenant is over. And we'll go into the lake of fire. She returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw one for all the causes where backsliding Israel committed adultery. I had put her away, given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not. You know, even sometimes if you do take strong measures with one, other people, ah, doesn't mean me. So Judah didn't fear she said, ah, that was Israel's problem. That's not my problem. It's like the church today. But went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom, or the casualness, lukewarmness, if you will, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks, made idols of all kinds of manufactured goods, whatever they might be. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister, Judah, had not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly, says the Eternal. Not really. Just in lip service. She's playing church. Make-believe. She feigns wholeheartedness, 
She claims wholeheartedness, but it isn't really there. And you can see by attitudes in the church that those who think they're Philadelphian, they think they're all right, you can see by attitudes, by what's going on, that the heart is not really in it. Do we seek God like we would seek silver and gold if we were miners? Is that the way we seek Him? Are we motivated every day to get on our knees and seek God with our whole heart? Can we hardly wait to pray? Can we hardly wait to get other stuff out of the way so that we can study His Word every day? Now, if I were a gold miner and I had gold fever, I tell you what, I'd be out in that creek with water coming right out from under the ice with my little pan, and I would be panning every day and digging with a shovel and fighting the ice off in the fall and staying there as long as I possibly could, maybe even digging into solid rock in the side of a mountain with a pick and shovel, because that's what greedy miners do and historically have. They work day and night. They make lamps on their heads so they can go underground and work long hours to dig gold and silver out of the ground. Now Christ says very clearly in the New Testament, that's the way you have to seek me. Do you live for prayer? Do you live for study of God's Word? Can you just not wait to get into it? We all have a long way to go, don't we? It's easy to compare ourselves to someone else and say, well, you know, I must be okay. Do I live to seek God? Do I live to marry Christ? No, so often I live for me. So often I'm interested in things I'm interested in. It isn't God that I seek with my whole heart automatically. I have to push myself sometimes onto my knees. I have to push myself to read the Bible. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes conditions make me get on my knees and seek God. When I'm in trouble, I seek Him a whole lot more than when things are going smoothly. Don't you? Is it any riddle then why God makes it difficult and puts many trials, troubles, and tribulations on us? It should become obvious. That's why he says, count it all joy when you enter in tribulation. Why? Because that tribulation makes you seek God. We need to understand what God is doing with the church and what he is about to do with the physical nations. We see the storm clouds gathering. We see the problems beginning to arise physically against our nation, just as we've seen it come against the church. Let's not go on unaware of what God is doing and why he's doing it. If we're educated to that, it'll help us attain what he is seeking in us sooner, easier.
Israel tends not to listen. And most of spiritual Israel today will not listen. And most of physical Israel will not listen. Though he sends prophets early, they won't hear. Herbert Armstrong yelled a lot of these things over the radio back in the 50s. How many heard? Not very many. How many listened? Not very many. You could drive across this country from coast to coast, and if you had a decent car radio, you could pick up the broadcast any hour of the day or night. I've driven many times, hundreds, thousands of miles, tuning from the world tomorrow to the world to the morrow to the world tomorrow. Can't do that anymore. There's a famine of the word. But in those early days, he was preaching repentance. He was re preaching the Assyrian is going to come, even though the Assyrian had just tried and failed. He was preaching a message of repentance. Got away from it later somewhat. And his son certainly got away from it. But he tried back in those years. Nobody listened. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to hear that. We just won a big war. Everything's fine. You know? Why are you talking to us about this stuff? Well, it's on us now. Are we getting the message or are we not? Are we still blaming it on someone else or saying, hey, it's not my problem? Israel, she saw Israel's trouble. Eh, not my problem. Because of the casualness and the Laodiceanism, the lukewarmness, she defiled the land. And Judah still would not hear, but did it half-heartedly, vainedly. The Lord said to me, All right, Jeremiah, here, here's what I'm going to say to you as a result of what you've just observed. The backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. See, here's the problem. When we hear about a problem, we transfer it to someone else. We are not willing to accept responsibility personally. We tend to defend and justify. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to do anything about it. We want somebody else to be wrong. We want them to solve the problem. We don't want to deal with it. But you know, what is Israel made up of? Physical Israel. Millions and millions of individuals Millions of individuals who do what each other do. Millions of individuals who follow peer pressure. What is the church made up of? Groups, organizations? It is made up of individuals. Now, we are to learn to work together to become a bride, to become a composite unit where all the pieces fit perfectly together, and there's nothing out of place. But in order to accomplish that, we have to get individuals to respond to wherever God placed them in the body. And to be the best they can be in that spot. Now it's hard for us to identify you know, where on the body we as individuals might fit. There seem to be a lack of some parts and a surplus of other parts. We won't get into that. And we don't know exactly where we fit. 
But we need to look at where God has placed us and try, those around us, to fit together as possibly, as best we possibly can. Wherever you find yourself, God says, fit in. Make it work. If he places you next to, let's use the analogy of the stone, it's a teaching method. He uses analogies. He talks about us all being stones cut out for the temple. Now, where he has placed you means that you are placed among other stones. Now, how's the fit? How is the fit? You're rubbing shoulders or sides, if you're a stone, with other stones. And if you've worked with stones any at all, you know that they do not absolutely always configure themselves exactly together. It is a marvel to this day of modern engineering how in the world they made the pyramids fit together as closely as they did. They fit together almost perfectly. We don't do that, do we? God puts us all in a group, puts us all in an organization, puts us in a certain place with other individuals, and we all have different shapes and thinkings and minds and emotions, don't we? Now, God says we are to fit ourselves and overcome and change and grow to look like Jesus Christ, yes, and be in the image of God because if we are all perfectly in that image, we'll fit together perfectly. So that is our individual responsibility is to look like God, act and think like God. And he's given us all these words to teach us how to do that. So this is our teaching manual. That's what this book is for, is to help us begin to get all the rough edges off, get all the shapes right, so that we fit together as the Father and the Son fit together, perfectly joined. That is the goal and the purpose set before us. So that we are fitly joined together as stones or as a human body. He uses both analogies. Now that takes some doing, and it takes some changing on all parts. When you get two rocks and put them together, it's not that one is perfectly shaped and the one next to it has all the uh, bad places, all the rough spots. Any two stones I picked up, they both had problems. None have been perfect of any of the stones I've ever picked up so that they fit perfectly together unless they've been broken in half, but even then they don't fit perfectly because there's grains that have moved and pieces that have chipped out so that the perfect fit is gone now. Or even if you cut them apart, the sawdust changes the overall circumference of each. So there's no way those two stones, no matter what two they are, can perfectly fit together. Now it's our job to make each other fit with each other. Need a challenge? There's one. <laughs> I have to get to the point that I fit perfectly together with each of you. Each of you has to get where you fit perfectly together with me. Each of you have to fit perfectly together with each other so that we, so that we 
become a perfect, cohesive bride for Christ. That's what we have to do. Do you think that will require any changes on your part? I know it requires an awful lot on mine. It requires teamwork. It requires working together, not just being independent Christians. Well, I'll think what I want. You may not be part of it, brethren. If you have that attitude, you may be pushed aside. This is a rock, a stone that will not conform. I cannot use it. He's the potter, to use another analogy. We're the clay. He has to be able to mold and make and shape us into a vessel of honor, not of dishonor. And if he can't shape us into a vessel of honor, if we're too resistant, he'll toss us and get some different clay. Uses the analogy of the wedding supper the same way. If you don't come with the right clothes on, you're not dressed for the event, out of here. How many analogies do we need? But here's ancient Israel's history, and we've got to do something different. Justifying ourselves will not help at all. Defending ourselves will not help at all. It takes humility to say, you got the right guy. It takes humility to say, maybe I need to adjust my thinking. Maybe I'm resisting something. Maybe there's an attitude behind why we resist a lot of times. Maybe we simply want it our way. And therefore we resist. Isn't that what carnal nature is all about? Not wanting to do it God's way, but wanting to do it our way. Because there may be something we simply don't want to do. And if we don't want to do it, we will try to find any way we can to resist doing it. Whether it's a different teaching, a different idea, or we'll go somewhere to defend our position and justify how we want to think and how we want to act. We'll find a way around it, rather than doing what God says. That's why the human heart is described in this very book, and we'll get there, as deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's how we are by nature. We will find a way to get our way, if at all possible. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, you backsliding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, says the Eternal, and I will not keep anger forever. Why go and proclaim it to the north? That's where the trouble was coming from. Those were the people who would be affected first. They were the ones who would go down by the sword, down by famine, and into captivity first. It's where the armies would first hit. So proclaim it to the north. Warn them to return to God. I won't keep my anger forever and I will be merciful. See, if we will respond in attitude, and that's, just, that's our biggest problem is attitude. It isn't technicalities of this book, I'm sorry. It's attitude. There's something we want or something we don't want. So we will find ways to try to get around it. 
No. He just says, only acknowledge your iniquity. Be willing to admit what attitudes are wrong. Figure out what it is deep inside you that you're rebelling against in terms of God's way. A lot of times doctrinal issues are just a smokescreen for underlying attitudes. That is very, very common. And it's the attitudes that we have to deal with. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Quit justifying, quit defending, acknowledge it. If you lie, admit you lie. If you cheat, admit you cheat. You can't overcome it until you admit it. Whatever the problem is. You see, we have such incredible defensive mechanisms and such deep self-justifying means that we have learned that so often we cannot see ourselves as we really are. There are people who are pathological liars who can look you right in the eye and tell you the truth as they see it and they are absolutely lying. They do not even know what the truth is. I've met a few of them in my life. They'll look you right straight in the eye and lie to you, and they think they're telling the truth. They've lied so much for so long that they don't know truth from error anymore. And they'll tell you, I didn't lie. But they did. How are they going to overcome it until they quit justifying and look at things the way they really are and acknowledge it. There are not going to be any liars in the kingdom of God. You want to be in the kingdom of God? Deal with the problem. We're justifying. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the eternal your God and have scattered your ways to the strangers under every green tree. Where, wherever we go, we just kind of roll with what's going on, peer pressure of the world. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Eternal. The whole world is going against God. If we are flowing with the world in any fashion, somehow, some way, we are disobeying God. There's no denying it. There's no getting away from it. Turn, O backsliding children, says the Eternal. For I am married to you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. That's how he's going to do it. That's how it's described in the book of Haggai. He is going to stir people, one of a city, two of a family, and bring them to Zion. That's what he's going to do. Now, that Zion means to God's throne in heaven. That's the first place we go. It means to the church of God, which is the bride he is putting together, so he has to bring them to that Zion. And ultimately, he's going to bring them to a place of safety called Zion. One of a city, two of a family. Now, it's easy to prove that Zion is a place of safety if you put all the scriptures together. Now, which Zion, people might question. 
Is it the Zion that is in the edge of the wall of old Jerusalem? Is it this place we're in? Is it somewhere else? That one you can get argument about. But if you look at all the scriptures honestly, there's nothing that says Petra is that place except that Christ is the rock and he is the ultimate place of safety. And he represents Zion too as a place of safety. But the Bible is full of allegories and analogies. And we have to sort through and realize how many times something overlaps and how God can use the same thing to mean so many different things coming together. That's what we have to grasp. But he says, if you'll repent, I'll bring you. One of a city, two of a family. That's just a trickle from here and a trickle from there, isn't it? He's not going to bring whole cities in. He's not going to bring in uh, whole big families. It's going, to, it's going to be broken up. He says we have to be willing to give. Give up father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, whatever. Lands, homes, for his sake. Ultimately, that will have to happen. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That means that pastors of another heart have predominated, and God will change that. He'll bring a different kind and feed, feed us with true knowledge and true understanding. And it shall come to pass, when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Eternal, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. This ultimately all comes together in the millennium starts earlier with God bringing a spiritual remnant out. It increases in volume when he brings all the physical Israel that survives the end time struggle, and the tribulation and the last plagues together. But his throne is going to be in the spot of original Jerusalem. Can't be anywhere else. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north, that is where they've been in captivity, among the Gentiles, to the land that I have given for an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, he said God told me this, Jeremiah says, but I said, how shall I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and shall not turn away from me. When we all begin to look to God as the ultimate, complete answer to everything, we won't look to anything here. We'll look to him. That's how it's going to come to pass. That means turning with our whole heart. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Eternal. We say we'll do one thing and we wind up doing another. I was done some time ago, wasn't I? I haven't been paying any attention to the clock. I'm sorry time on the tape, but service started at 10.30, it's over 12.30. Oh, it was his fault. It's not my, thank you for the justification, thanks for the defense, I appreciate it, it's your fault. I did nothing wrong. 
I wiped my mouth like the whore in Proverbs. I did no wrong. Where did it go? I'm sorry. Uh, I usually kind of pay attention, but I got going here. Well, let's see. We've dealt treacherously with God. I hate to quit there. Let's, let's read four more verses quickly. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. We departed, and now we're in trouble. So we hear weeping and crying, cause and effect. For they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. So God says we're perverts. You know, if you're perverted, isn't that what it is? It doesn't have to be a sexual pervert necessarily. We're, we're perverted in so many ways. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. God will help us get our feet moving. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. That's where we've got to come, where he is the main and only true focus in our lives, and that everything else comes under that. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains, whether it be church organizations or physical governments, small ones or large ones, hills and mountains. That isn't the answer. Ultimately, it comes down to you and me and whether I and whether you turn to God with your whole heart. Because it is an individual salvation, even though he is putting a 144,000-piece bride together. That bride will have 144,000 pieces. It will have it. The only question is whether you and I are one of the pieces. So, truly, it comes down to God. The church is here to guide, to help, to point you at the Father. That's what the ministry is for. To be a mother standing to the side, pointing you to your Father. To help you open the lines of communication, draw near to God. Isn't that what I challenged you to do at the beginning of this service? I didn't say, come to me and I'll give you the answer to all your problems. I said, while you're here, get as close to God as you possibly can. That's my job, to point you to your Father in heaven. And I'm going to do my best to get you there, to help you achieve that. I can't do it for you. I can point you in that direction. I can try to be out of your way to get you there. But I'm not there to block you from it. I'm not there in any way to impede that or cut off your communication with God. I'm here to help you get it. But truly, He is your salvation. The ministry plays a small part compared to Him, and ultimately compared to you. You have to seek Him as gold and silver, as a miner in a creek with a pan. You have to want it that bad that you're willing to stand in water that makes your bones ache, digging through the rocks and dirt and sand, to find spiritual gold. We have to stay till our hands and our feet and our legs ache from the strain of spiritual endeavor. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. I can look back at the fathers of my youth and the church, the ones I looked up to, the ones I respected, the ones who taught me a lot of what I know. They're gone. Shame has come upon the church. Shame upon the teachers of old. 
Shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Where is Ambassador College? Where is Imperial School? Where is the broadcast? I just read in the journal that just came yesterday that worldwide in Big Sandy, Texas, has now dropped all Sabbath-keeping and is meeting only on Sunday. They were meeting Saturday and Sunday to please both, and the current pastor says, I prefer not to use the the word dropped, the Sabbath, but combined. Dropping the Sabbath sounds sort of cold and hard. Shameful. Their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters were all in shame today. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us. Isn't the church confused? Isn't the church more confused in its own way than the nation is? The nation isn't confused. It's totally deceived. It's going totally the wrong direction. But the church is confused, not knowing quite which direction to go. Our confusion covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. I've been in the church almost all my life. This is talking about me. I am ashamed. I have been confused. I want to find the right way, and I want to go there. I want to find our way out of confusion. And let's find our way as pieces together of the bride of Christ and live together in love, kindness, patience, mercy, long-suffering, the fruit of God's Spirit. That's what we need to learn. We can learn that. We're going to be part of what God is doing. We'll be part of his bride. And Israel today and the church is a long way from it. Can we accept the challenge? Can we become what we need to be? Go to your father. Let's see if we can get something done about this.